Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Kubrick's Universe. Before we get into it, we have to ask, what would our show be without a little bit of banter with the true executive producers of Kubrick's Universe, Lily and Evie Rigg? I'm just going to try some new headphones that uh, I've stolen from my little girl. Are they pink? Right, let's, these are Bluetooth, so let me see if I can connect via Bluetooth. You have to press a button here to get them to... Is there a button you need to press to, uh, um, for my computer? You have to connect Bluetooth. Fuck off, oh, turn Bluetooth off, that means... My mouse has stopped working. Oh. Huh? What do I do now? Why does it do Uh-oh. Um, uh, emergency mouse required. Right, quick, turn that back on. Bluetooth. Wait, what? Right, Bluetooth connected there. There's no reply at all. Oh, is that off? Yeah, off. Did you say something? Don't say that. Oh, they're there, look, connect. Where? Legitimately, are they working? Even. Yeah, connection rejected. Maybe these are still starting up. No, they're fully on. One minute. Have you been doing this for now? No, we've we, we only just started. We haven't got the inter- We haven't got. You know David and Lisa, the actor? You know who Oh, yeah, yeah. That, that man that you like. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That guy. That, that, guy. that, that bloke. Right, I'm going to try one more time to get these up and running and then I'll go back to the old headphones. Have you got oh, the coronavirus? In America? Yeah, it's all over the place. Have you got it? No. Oh. What a rude question. But he was sniffling. That's okay. I sniffle. Because you're a winner. At least I still have one pack of juice for you. Well, at least I do, and that's mine, so get off it. Ooh. Rear! <laughs> It's Kubrick's Universe, the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. I need to get my hair cut. You can. Why? 
Thanks for tuning in to Kubrick's Universe. The song you're hearing is called Lockdown, and it was written and recorded by Barney Williams and his family. Barney is a dear friend of our show's producer, Stephen Rigg. Barney produced this wonderfully catchy tune to help cope with what life has become like for us presently. It is now May 2020, and with the COVID-19 pandemic dominating nearly every hour of human life on planet Earth... These are, to say the least, very challenging times. With our current situation upon us for the foreseeable future, we're proud to try bringing a glimmer of light to things, because shortly after the coronavirus outbreak, we had the pleasure of chatting with an actor who needs no introduction, a humanitarian of extraordinary empathy and compassion, and, simply put, a wonderful guy, Kier DeLay. In this episode, we're going to bring you the first installment of our talk with him. I've met and spoken with him a few times, and I mean it. You won't find a more gracious, intelligent, or thoughtful man than Kier. He not only has perspective and wisdom, he has kindness in his core. He was kind enough to spend some time with us all while we navigate the reality of our lives now, and we really hope you enjoy this time we all get to spend alone, but together, with Kier DeLay. So, open your pod bay doors and join us for a little while as we get to ask Kier about his early career and the opportunities that led to him working with Stanley Kubrick. All right, so um, yeah, Kier, um, uh, what was it? Uh, nine, almost ten years ago, Stephen founded a group on Facebook called the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society, and it became uh, one of the most successful, if not the most. And uh, uh, he started that, and I guess what was what year was it, Stephen? Two thousand eleven. Correct. 2011. Yes. So going, yeah. And then um, after we'd become friends, uh, Stephen and I, we had this idea to do the world's first continuously running podcast for all things Stanley. There had been some podcasts out there that were 
one-offs or six-part series, if you will, that kind of thing. And we just thought, you know, gosh, there's such a, a treasure trove and, you know, why not do something that we could, you know, enjoy doing in perpetuity? And that began about two and a half years ago at this point, and um, it's just been a blast, so... Well, that's great. Well, I, 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 I support you. It's, uh, you know, he was, he's right up there with Lord Wells. I mean, mm. uh, he's one of the great directors in, in, of all time. Indeed. Do you, I, since you brought up Orson, I'm just going to ask as a, a sidebar, do, do you have an Orson, a favorite Orson Welles film? Oh gosh. Well, Citizen Kane is obvious one though, but they're, you know, um, there have been other films I just can't think one of offhand. But mm, you know, okay. he was certainly. You know what I? I in interviews I'm often asked about. Um, did I have a sense when I made the film uh, that it was going to, you know, get on the American Film Institute's top hundred films of all time? Hmm. And, you know, the answer usually that I give is that not really, because if you had interviewed the cast members of uh, Citizen Kane at the time, how could they possibly imagine that 75 years later they'd be studied in film schools? Right. It's <laughs> a good point. So that's really my answer is similar. I, I realized that I was a part of a wonderful film and that was going to get a lot of attention, but I had no idea that it was going to be, that we'd be more than 50 years later having a conversation like this. Yeah. Many, many conversations. I mean, yeah. since the right. invention of the internet and then social media, <laughs> it, more right. than ever, that film is alive, breathing and doing very, very yeah. well in the uh, popular consciousness. Kier, so I'm calling you from North New Jersey, and we're going to talk about that later because of okay. our our connection here, which I only learned of last week when we spoke. And um, you're in Connecticut, um, hopefully sheltering in place. And uh, I just want to ask how you and your wife and your loved ones are doing in this situation. Well, we're doing okay. Uh, we are completely isolated, but... Um... It, 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 I'm not finding it that difficult. We have lots of books to read and, you know, we watch uh, a lot of video stuff and um, we're well stocked up with food. Uh, my wife tends to do a little, she's, she's younger than I am. So she's probably going to brave this epidemic better than I. So she's doing a little shopping, but she isn't she's inviting it necessary to go shopping more than once about every 10 days. And we could even, we've got about 75 cans of sardines. If worst came to worst. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we're doing, we're doing okay. Thank you. That's, that's so good to hear. And, um, you mentioned that you, uh, do get in a morning walk or a, a bicycle ride. Yeah. We, we live next to a cemetery. When I say next to, I mean literally. <laughs> our our property line borders uh, the the cemetery, so it's about oh thirty five strides, and we're through the gate, the cemetery gate, and uh, we're not getting a lot of 
There isn't a lot of traffic of people walking much. There's some, <laughs> but nothing like you'd find in public streets and people trying to get exercise. So if I bicycle around, the, there's a, an outside loop within the cemetery that I, if I go once around, it's about a mile and a tenth. So I usually try to do about 10 miles. It takes me, you know, go, I go around about nine times. Nine times. And, and that's, equivalent, that's equivalent to about 10 miles. So I try to do that every day if the weather is good or we walk it. That's great. I mean, I'm so glad you're keeping uh, active and, uh, you know, physical as we're into this now for over a month of the, the real hardships that are hitting everyone. Yeah. They're they're really getting the word out now for everyone to try and get some exercise, even though, of course, we're all supposed to shelter in place and stay at home as right. much as possible. Um, yeah. So I, I just had a Side question, since you mentioned uh, you've been able to keep up with uh, reading books, is there anything you're reading right now that you never had and have finally got the chance to catch up with? Well, there's there's an Irish uh, author by the name of Trevor. Um, this 85-year-old mind can't. William Trevor, I think. So. Anyway, he's he's an extraordinary novelist that I I I read a lot of. His, I happen to have a lot of books by him that I hadn't gotten to read yet. So I've been reading his work. He's a, he's a brilliant Irish play um, novelist, I think. And um, William Trevor. William Trevor. And, uh, yeah. Uh, there you have Kier Delay's book of the month selection for you. <laughs> if you would. Well, any of his books. He's, he's just. Quite, but he was nominated. He's been nominated for a lot of awards, and uh, he's brilliant. Yep. Um, yeah. So for everyone listening, if you're at home and doing the self quarantine thing as you should, um, check out some work, some of the works of William Trevor. That's what Kier's reading as we speak. So that, that's that's so great to hear that um, you know you're managing the situation. Uh, as best as can, and in fact, maximizing things like getting caught up on some reading. Absolutely. And seeing some, you know, we have, uh, of course, they don't have this in the UK that I know of, but I, I watch, we watch a lot of, um, uh, you know, the, the, the channel that shows all the, all the historical movies going way back, including, you know, um, I suddenly can't think of the name of the oh, channel. Turner Turner classic Turner movies. classic movies yes Turner classic we watch that a lot and as a matter of fact there's a great film being shown tonight which was an extraordinary film called The Group it was a Sydney Lumet film oh yeah of course yeah it's a brilliant film and uh, we've been watching a lot of oh um, God we saw Alan Alda in a wonderful Alan Alan Alda in a wonderful film. Uh, recently, um, the harsh, the hardest lonely hunter. Oh yes, gosh, I haven't seen that since I was in college, but oh, I, it's I a do. Brilliant film, it's yeah, wonderful. He is, he has no, you know, he's playing a deaf and dumb person. He has no lines, but my God, what an acting job he's done! I'm making a note to watch that tonight. Um, yeah. I, I do recall really enjoying it. I don't know why I haven't got back to see it all these years, but yeah, that's fantastic. 
Uh, that's a that's yeah. a fantastic movie. And Turner Classic Movies um, is a great channel. Um, and what they've done for gosh decades now is really uh, treat the film they're about to present the home viewer with a reverence. And it's introduced, and they have a lot of um, anecdotal information, none of which is inserted while you're enjoying the film. Um, but I can't recall the name of the host. Now there was Mankiewicz. Mankiewicz. Yes. Thank you. And there was a gentleman who, his father was a famous producer. He introduces the film. Sometimes they have guest introducers, Mm -hmm. but he does most of them. And he gives you some very interesting information before you watch the film. And then he comes on at the end of the film to kind of, finish it off it's uh, he's great oh great and that will that will be joseph l mankowitz's uh son will it it was joseph mankowitz was the uh, the old hollywood yeah. producer wasn't it yeah he did a lot of a lot of things they also have a, a live film festival um once a year there's a, a uh, in hollywood there's a theater they take over once a year uh, in which they salute certain films uh, by having a, a live presentation with an audience uh, that you can go to. And uh, as a matter of fact, they did one of my films not too long ago called David and Lisa. And so I went out there for it. But it's, it, they're a wonderful organization. Oh, well, two things. Firstly, I absolutely adore David and Lisa. Every nuanced cadence of that film is just sublime. And... I, I mean that from the heart. It's a, it's a special film to me, and well, I thank you. I I just can't say enough about um, how remarkable you and Janet Margolin are together. the The chemistry and the acting is just so organic. And also a favorite actor of mine that I was so pleased to work with uh, that was howard de silva who plays the psychiatrist yes yes in the film and you know he had a brilliant hollywood career and then he was blacklisted during the mccarthy era uh but he had a wonderful career as a matter of fact he had a great broadway career he was he must have done 30 broadway shows he was but he was in the original broadway production uh, of Oklahoma playing, you know, the song Poor Judd is Dead. He played yeah. Judd. Oh, my and gosh. An extraordinary actor. And David and Lisa, which was made by Frank Perry, the director, mm-hmm. was, it was Frank Perry's first film, and he couldn't have cared less about his politics. He just wanted the right actor. So he was responsible for um, Howard Silva's second Hollywood, uh, second film acting, acting career. He, Completely. He, that's amazing. He he helped him. Re- I mean, remember he was played Benjamin Franklin in 1776, and uh, he had a wonderful career afterwards. And and David Lisa was completely responsible for my career, uh, film career, 100. percent I mean, I had one feature film before called The Hoodlum Priest, where mm-hmm. directed by Irvin Kirshner, which was a good film, but it didn't do that much for my uh, acting career until David and Lisa came along. Is, I mean, um, Stephen, is that, um, I've got a lot of threads in my head right now. Is that the same Irvin Kirshner who 
um, yeah. directed Empire Strikes Back, and yes, yeah, yes. yeah. So that was that was almost uh, that was twenty years later, wasn't it? Yeah, indeed. Yeah. We did a number of good films. Um, I can't think of them offhand, but if you look them up, you'll 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 recognize some of the films that did very well. And with he worked with some kind of uh, high powered people later. The Hoodlum Priest was his first feature film. He'd, he'd done other films before that. I think he did The Eyes of Laura Mars, didn't he? Was that one yeah. of his? Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember that one. That used to, in the early days of cable television, back in the early 1980s, that one was played a lot. That's a great film. I think Irvin Kirshner was, according to George Lucas, he was one of his professors at, was it UCLA? I think that... Um, yes, that's, you're right. Isn't yeah. It? Oh, and also, oh gosh, you remember a, a Kazan film uh, about this young man who is in Greece, and he gets to go come to America. Ilya Kazan directed it. Oh gosh. Um. Oh gosh, I can't of... think of the name of. It. Can't think of the name of it. The name of the young. It was named Stathios Yayelis. He was a Greek actor that... Uh, America, America. America, America, that's, right. that's it, from 1963? Right. Yes. Well, if, you look, if you look that up, the cinematographer of that film... Haskell Wexler. At, well, Haskell Wexler. Well, Haskell Wexler, well done. Uh, Haskell Wexler was the cinematographer cinematographer on my first film, Hoodlum Priest. Wow. Oh my gosh. The, the Kirshner film. Yeah. There's just a, a, another connection yet still. Wow. Um, and I, I noticed some others uh, while I was, you know, getting ready uh, over the past couple days to chat with you again and we'll get to them. But real quick, I want to go back uh, to Turner Classic Movies because I could not remember the name of the host uh, who ran the show for many years, and his name was Robert Osborne. That's correct, yes. Do you remember him? Yes, and I was interviewed by him for something, and I can't remember what it could have been for 2001, but I can't remember. But I also... He, I, I encountered him socially. He was a lovely man, a mm. truly lovely, warm individual, and I uh, was sorry to lose him. Yeah, that was only a few years ago. I think he passed in yeah. 2017. Maybe, maybe five years ago, something like that. Yeah. I don't remember exactly how long. Yeah. And he had a very warm screen presence. He just knew when, yes, he did. He, when you were about to sit down with Robert Osborne introducing the film, you were going to have a great time. Well, that's what he was like in person, even just just privately. He was the same way. Hmm. That's wow. That's wonderful. He um, he received a Peabody Award, I think, towards the end of his career too. Rightfully so. Yeah. yeah rightfully so. Absolutely. Well, if it's okay, I want to ask you about David and Lisa since you brought it up. Sure. Um, and although. As I've said that, you know, the performances were heralded and are still at the time, uh, it was deemed a bit controversial by some since it, uh, you know, touched upon 
again, at the time, a socially taboo subject of uh, clinical mental health care, uh, mm-hmm. partic- particularly in young people. So my question is, how how were you drawn to the project and what excited you about wanting to work on it? Well, I had worked, um, Frank Perry <clears throat> had a half hour program on public television at the time before he did uh, before he did Dave and Lisa, um, he kind of produced it. I don't think he directed any of them. Um, but he, um, it was called playwright at work. It was on channel 13 in New York and uh, which was the public television, at, uh, channel at the time. And, um, he, his, I think the pilot for that series was written by his wife who wrote the screenplay, uh, Eleanor Perry, who wrote the screenplay for David and Lisa. And it was a play that she had written. And the, 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 the point of the program was that a climactic scene from a work in progress would be acted. And then the other half, the other 15 minutes would be an interview with the playwright. Okay. And, um, so I would, I did the pilot and I did another, uh, another, um, oh God, Coppet, the, the playwright, Arthur Coppet. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He did, oh, dad, poor dad, mama's hung, hung you in the closet and I'm feeling so sad. That was Arthur Coppet. And I remember doing, he, he appeared on the, on this pro, program. And I was also in the acting section, the 15 minute acting section. So, uh, I knew nothing about David and Lisa was when it was first being cast. I wasn't, hadn't been approached, but, um, they cast a young actor, uh, who, uh, you, I can't remember his name, but he, he would be familiar to you. If I, if I could remember this is an 84, 83 year old mind is, working quite as well as it used to. But anyway, um, he, um, he was cast in this film, which was, see, Dave and Lisa, the budget was $180,000. And it was, they raised, raised that money was raised not by having a distribution, but, but, uh, he raised it the way you raise money to produce a play that he had people just, you know, uh, here I'll, I'll invest twenty thousand, or I'll invest right, a thousand, right. whatever, and that's how he made. That's how he got the money to make the film. Gosh. So this young actor, uh, just before he was supposed to begin, a number of weeks before he was supposed to begin, uh, he got a Hollywood film, and and he he said, "Sorry, folks, but I I got to take this job." So they were suddenly without a David. So they began to see everybody in New York for this role. And that's when my agent heard that they were willing to see me. They knew me from that. They had liked my work, but they, they thought I was uh, possibly too old for the part. I always looked very young for my age in those days, mm. because when I made David and Lisa, I was supposed to be playing a, you know, a high school age kid. Right. But I was actually, I think I was about, I think I was about 26 when I did David and Lisa. Mm-hmm. So they, they, they saw me in their apartment, their apartment. They just had a 16 millimeter f- camera in their apartment. And the, anybody they were interviewing, they would 
you give your name, rank, and c- serial number, and they'd ask you a few <laughs> questions, and that was it. And I remember walking into the, I had just gotten a haircut, a, a, a kind of close haircut. Whenever you, you know, it kind of makes you look even younger. Yes, of course. And I remember walking into their, it was Eleanor Perry, was married to Frank Perry, uh, Frank, uh, Eleanor uh, greeting me at the doorway. And she's, oh, Keir, if you were only five years young. Oh, no. Stopped, just, oh, my God, you look so much younger. So uh, they had me come in and stand in front of the 60-millimeter camera, and it really was name, rank, and serial number. What's your name? How old are you? Blah, blah, blah. And that was it. And I got an offer from my agent the next day. Wow. And that was it. That's how it happened. And it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. It was a tiny cast, all done on location in uh, suburban Philadelphia on the main line. Right. Right next, I can't remember the name of the town. It was right next to Haverford, Pennsylvania. Anyway, um, and it was, and Frank Perry, it was just, he was a wonderful director. It was just such an intimate, very intimate uh, experience. And it was a a perfect experience, Hmm. as a matter of fact. Well, dare I say it is something, and I don't say this often nor lightly, but it is a perfect film. I I mean that. I, I, everything you you say about, um, the, uh, the, the experience you had um, working on the set, that intimacy and the small cast, I can imagine there would have been a rather small crew as well. Uh, it all parlays into, you know, a seamless uh, and almost ethereal, you know, viewing experience. It, the location shots, the camera movement, the fluidity of all of these synergies working together along with of course uh you know it, you're acting with um oh gosh um uh, uh Janet Margolin with Janet Margolin and um it 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 moves from interiors to exteriors in a way that never feels disjunctive thank you and nor do, nor does it feel that it's um uh, what's the word I would use? Um, kind of like, uh, um, oh, bear with me, Kira. I'm sorry. This is my noisy right. Montclair neighborhood. No, I had a car alarm going on <laughs> outside. There are some, some people still about, there's still a couple of shops open on this block. Um, uh, um, the word I was searching for was voyeuristic it does not feel in any way that it's a voyeuristic viewing experience the right. one of the Given additional the matter exactly exactly yeah. because you know it was then and it's still a, a sensitive topic and thankfully you know now in 2020 society is hope to say you know much more adept at uh being able to address things like the need for clinical mental health care um, especially in younger people, but it really does bring you into the world of David and Lisa and, um, the, the doctor that, that who, who cares for you so much and all, all of the extra characters, your friends, uh, in the school. There's, there's, there's no wasted 
movement. There's no wasted dialogue. Everybody belongs in that world. You might be interested to know that one of the minor roles of this, some of the a few other students that had had some scenes with us, um, you know, like they were in the dining room as the table when I first entered the school and I have my first meal and I'm surrounded by several students. And one of the female actresses, actors, mm-hmm. um, was Karen Gorney, who played the female lead in Saturday Night Fever. Are you kidding me? Yeah, opposite, uh, you know... Um, John Travolta. Yes, opposite John Travolta. I had not made that connection. Wow. Yeah. And of course, anyway. that was a hugely successful picture. Um, yeah. But, at, and I assume that's when you met Karen, that was the first time you'd worked together? Oh, yeah. And Absolutely. Did you, I'm, you know, did you stay I, in you touch? Know, she wasn't. She wasn't. No, as a matter of fact... Uh, I hadn't seen her since until about three years ago. Uh, we, um, I was in a play. It was a revival of a play, um, Tennessee Williams play. And, it, and she was and my wife and I, my wife is, uh, is a Tony nominated actress who was, and we did this play together. We worked a lot, a lot together, my wife and I, and, um, in these, in the last 20 years, and uh, this was a, a revival uh, off Broadway, and um, and she was in it. Hadn't seen her since David and Lisa. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. Well, time and anyway, time and good fate was meant to bring you two together again in some way. Yeah. Well, since you mentioned the uh, fact that you looked. Uh, and you still do, do look very young for your age, if I may say, and I mean that. It, the um, the the fact that you went from playing a high school age uh, young man, a boy, in 1962 in David and Lisa, and of course you made the Thin Red Line in 1964, but in 1960... 1960- actually, actually, it was filmed in 63. So 63. Next year. Right, yeah. sorry. Um, released... In in sixty four, right. But um, I was merely going to say how remarkable it is that come nineteen sixty five, with the release of Bunny Lake is missing, here you are, you know, playing um, the brother, and your performance comes across as though you are certainly not a teenager, but you no. know, very much a, a young professional man, you know, who's uh, mm-hmm. already making his claim to uh, the world of journalism, staking his claim, as it were. And um, that's another testament to your gifts as an actor, I think, because if you you watch the two films back-to-back, on one hand, you could say, oh, it's clearly the same person, he's only a few years apart, but the way you portray the two different characters belies the, the, the small difference in the time frame between those two movies. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, that was closer to my own, my actual age in those things. And uh, uh, maybe my hair grew a little longer. So I looked my own age. I don't know. <laughs> I forgot. But uh, yeah, it, that was not, that was not the happiest. I, lo- I mean, the high point of that film was getting to work with Lawrence Olivier, which was, oh, yes. uh, he, he, uh, which was, I uh, will, was a very important 
time in my life to have gotten to work with that genius and mm-hmm. lovely man. I loved working with him. He was wonderful, which made it the whole thing worthwhile, given the fact that it was the most horrendous experience in terms of working with a director, because Otto Preminger was not a pleasure to work with. I mean, he, you may, I don't know whether you know, but he's, he's famous for being very difficult to work oh, with. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, we know. And and it was it was not a fun experience. And Olivier was one of the... And I enjoyed working with Carol Lindley, but she was getting some of the same flack that I was. And, uh, of course, he never treated Olivier that way. Believe me. I'm sure. It was, uh, but, uh, in fact, that, I, that was another reason to look forward to working with on those scenes where he would be in there wouldn't be that kind of flack. Right. To, to, not, not to the same extent anyway, but, um, well, he had so, to, yeah, give Olivier the respect he'd already earned at that point in oh, his career. Yes. yes. Even, and, you know, Otto I mean, Premature. He, he would, he would have, he would have, Otto Premier would have, would have treated, uh, John Wayne with kindness, you know, I mean, he, uh, <laughs> it, right. it was, it was a ranking system. If you were young enough, he, the young people that he worked with, he got he got most of the flack. Got, I mean, he was tr- he was a screamer. Well, not only did he scream at people, but which were almost worse that in front of you know he'd be in front of the whole crew. He would his biting sarcasm mm. uh, was almost worse than being screamed at. He was not, right. a, and he made some good films. I'm not knocking his talent. You know, there's some wonderful films that he made, but. Um, it wasn't wonderful working with him. Yeah, I believe there's plenty of uh, there are plenty of stories out there about him uh, being notorious on the set. I think John Frankenheimer was also the kind to, you know, carry a bullhorn around and and bark <laughs> at people. Yeah, yeah, not a pleasant director, but you know he was, of course, you know, established at that point uh, when you'd made uh, Bunny Lake is Missing. I want to ask you about working alongside Carol Lin, uh, Carol Lindley and uh, a bit more about Laurence Olivier, because for you as a young actor, that must have been the opportunity to mine a treasure trove, if you will, of things from his craft. Do you have any particular fond memories? Well, I, I had been a, I had been a fan of his since high school. You know, I, I saw his early, not all his real, I mean, not, I didn't see his works from the thirties, but I certainly saw him play Hamlet, the, mm-hmm. the film in which mm-hmm. he played Hamlet and it was, he was brilliant. And so to get to work with this man who I'd seen in other things too, you know, was just watching how he worked and he was so kind to me. He, uh, actually, um, he he was very sensitive to the fact that I was suffering working with Otto Preminger and he would, uh, on his own time uh, away from the set, go over the lines with me over and over and over again, because I never studied lines so hard in my life, much harder than you normally do on a film because you don't, it's not like memorizing a play. You, you memorize the day's work a few days mm-hmm. ahead of time. <clears throat> But he would go over the lines, over knowing that I had a tendency to be so tense that I kept going up in my lines. Right. Uh, not because I hadn't learned them. It's just because I was so stressed out. So he was loved. In fact, he was overheard privately 
some crew member heard him going over to went over to the side and somebody overheard him say, also, dear boy, I, I really wish you wouldn't scream at the children. I was proposed. I'm proposed to change. to change. Anyway, but uh, no, it was lovely working with. It was a it was such a high point working with. Uh, and you know, when you think about it, I was about to say that <clears throat> my very my very next film was 2001. After, but it wasn't actually. I, I, I there was another film in between, but. Uh, let's see, I, I filmed that, um, Bunny Lake is Missing was, um, the, the spring of 1965. And I arrived at the end of that year in London to begin filming, uh, 2001. So it was only like eight months later that I worked with, uh, Stanley. And so going from Premature to Stanley, I was about to accept, I, I, I remember there was another film in between, but um, uh, it was going like from hell to heaven. That Yeah, I mean, that's to be expected in the sense that, well, I'm assuming you would have been familiar at that point with Dr. Strangelove, Lolita. And- oh, I was, uh, when I, when I was in drama school, I, it was a school called the Neighborhood Playhouse <clears throat> uh, in in New York. There's Sanford Meisner. I don't know if you've heard of the Meisner. Yes, of course. Meisner, he, yes, absolutely. He was our he, he was he was our acting teacher. It was my acting teacher, and and um, Martha Graham was our dance teacher. It was a great school. But um, I remember having an afternoon off there. The, the, the school was on Fifty Fourth Street just uh, between first and second avenues. And um, <clears throat> a few of the, my fellow students started raving about this war picture down the street hmm. uh, with Kirk Douglas. Yes. So I had the afternoon off. So I went down there and it was paths of glory. Of course. And uh, my God, I mean, my jaw dropped to my waist when I, <laughs> I, I mean, I, when the film was over, I just, I had to go out and look at the poster and say, who directed this thing? Right, right. Because I thought it was was one of the most extraordinary films I'd ever seen. Yeah. And little did I know that I'd end up working with this genius. Not not even a decade later from... No, yeah. That's just incredible. And I saw everything after. You know, I saw all the film that he did before that with um, Sterling Hayden. Uh, about Dr. Strangelove. Oh, oh, The Killing, no. of course. The, the killing. killing. Yes, so I, yes. You know, I saw The Killing, I saw Lolita, I saw Dr. Strangelove, and everything afterwards. But, you know, I... I um, so, you know, when I arrived, I think... I think uh, Stanley's only problem with me was kind of to get me over my sense of awe. I mean, mm. I was in such awe of working with him. Yeah. And I remember... I mean, you know, I always felt that I, we first started working together, I felt maybe I'm a little stiff just because I can't forget that I'm working with this genius. <laughs> and, and, and he, he just took me aside one day sh- shortly after we began, very shortly after we began. And he just said, Kier, I just want you to know that 
you're one of the finest actors I've had the pleasure to work with. Wow. I just want you to know that. I, I just love your work. I just want you to know that you're okay. Oh, my gosh. And, you know, I don't remember the exact wording, but it was approximately that's what he said. Mm. And then I was fine from there on in. Right. Because that's all it takes, you know, yeah. um, to receive the, you know, private praise of someone who you already admired. He, first of all, he never, he never raised his voice. He was never sarcastic. Mm. You just knew you were dealing with this highly intelligent guy. Mm. And he was open to ideas. Didn't necessarily mean he'd use them, but you, you, you never felt shy about suggesting something. Right. In fact, I have—I only have one suggestion he actually ended up using, which was a very minor thing from my point of view. Very, very minor. But Please it tell was, us. Uh, it, it, it was the scene uh, in when it, it toward the at the end of the film when I'm in that strange room uh, and I begin to age. Mm-hmm. Um, first appearing in a spacesuit, and then I'm an older man in a blue black, blue bathrobe eating mm-hmm. at a mm-hmm. table. And uh, up till then, I had two versions of the aging. One was uh, just looking like I normally did in the spacesuit, and there was an older version where through the visor of the spacesuit, you could see this face was beginning to age. And each time... Um, each time the younger version became aware of the older version, Stanley would cut to the older version and never would cut back to the younger version. Mm. But you'd see the younger version reacting in some way uh, to make you want to see what is he reacting to, and then Stanley would cut to the older version. So the older version with the wrinkled face inside the spacesuit reacts to something, and then you cut to the figure older yet eating at the table. And then the oldest version, which is, you know, me looking like a 200 years old on, on, on the bed, Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, reaching up to the monolith. Um, so you have the younger version at the table eating reacting. And instead of just a look, which I had been doing up till then, I, I said, Stanley, do you mind if I, how about I knock something off the table <laughs> and, and I have to reach down for it just to give it a variety of a way of reacting. And just as I'm reaching, I become aware of something. And then I look over mm. to see the oldest version. So that was wow. all it was. <laughs> that's the minor that, suggestion. Kier, that is no minor <laughs> suggestion, my friend. That's an epical moment. Well, a, a lot of people read a lot into that moment, but my 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 motivation for it was to find a different way of reacting. Right. In the moment, acting, you know, acting moment. is reacting, yeah. of course, right. as they say. Exactly. Yeah. And so I'm just going to say again i don't think that's a small contribution at all it's it's a it's a very very unique and abrupt moment in a film that is largely quiet and particularly during right. that scene which is right. especially quiet um just the sound of the breaking glass as i'm sure you've you know attended many screenings i've seen 2001 
on uh, the big screen. I don't know how many times now, but if the theater has a great sound system, uh, that right. moment when the glass hits the floor just before you mm -hmm. turn to react, it's it's jarring, but effectively jarring. Right. Yeah. Now, I I believe that uh, on a Twitter forum with the hashtag Ask Bowman, you said at some point recently that walking on the sets of 2001 made Disneyland look sad. Is that true? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, and especially the centrifuge, which is almost three stories high. It, you know, it, it is in the largest studio uh, of the complex and just about missed the lights that were up there, you know, by a few feet. Mm -hmm. And it it was it it was it was actually built not by set builders. That wheel was built by Vickers Aircraft, and it was a it was it was the equivalent of a Ferris wheel, right? But enclosed with a set inside, and it could revolve at three miles an hour. And um, as a matter of fact. Uh, there's the scene where, if you remember, uh, I think it's the first scene where you see me in that centrifuge. Uh, Gary Lockwood is eating at a table, and I enter the scene uh, at the at the hub of the wheel with mm -hmm. a ladder coming down, and I come down the ladder and I go over to this place to get some food, mm -hmm. some hot food, and then I walk seemingly walk upside down right. to Gary Lockwood <laughs> and slide next to him because you know, that, that take was all, it's all one take. It's oh, all yeah. one shot. Yep. And the, how they did that was that he pans me coming down that ladder. And then, uh, I, again, getting the food and then seemingly walking upside down, but they don't, I don't, obviously I don't walk upside down. I just stand in place. And they revolve Gary Lockwood down right. to me. Right, right. This is how that was done. It's extraordinary. And I mean, uh, whenever I find myself having to explain to people much younger than myself, uh, who have only known the filmmaking worlds that includes computer generated imagery or CGI, you know, it's impossible uh, for them to grasp. You know, in one sentence, you can't just say, you do understand that this film was made before CGI. It, it takes further explanation because they're incredulous. And and then if I get the chance to explain, no, this is how Stanley and his team did this. This is how that shot was created. You know, their jaw, you know, drops and, you know, it's like they swallow three three flies. <laughs> well, you might, I don't remember. I may, I may have told you how they got the shot, which was the only kind of scary stunt that I had to do myself, um, which was the shot, uh, the scene where uh, when Hal won't let me back in, I have to go through the emergency right. uh, entrance and be blown into this airless hatchway. Mm -hmm. um, the reason they couldn't use a stuntman is because in my hurry to try to save Gary Lockwood or try to get him anyway, uh, who's been killed by Hal, mm -hmm. uh, by disconnecting him. Um, uh, I have, I have left my space, my helmet mm -hmm. 
back so, behind. So I have to be, it had to be my face. So Stanley needed your face. That airlock. Yeah, clearly. It blown into the airlock. And how that was done was they had a circus rust that they had hired for this stunt. And he measured the drop. And which was, a, you know, as I say, it was two or three stories drop because the camera was on, uh, was on the floor looking up. Of course. Uh, cause the, the, it was built, not, not looking side. The, the film in the film, it looks as I'm, it looks like I'm blown horizontally. Yeah. Right. Horizontally. But actually it was done with me. It was, it was done vertically. It's a vertical and, shot and, and you're on measured, top. Yeah. He measured the drop and then twice measured more rope, which was attached to a wire, which was attached to the rear of my spacesuit. And so uh, uh, I'm, I'm those two stories up just to the side of that hatchway that I've blown, that I'm going to be blown through, but out of sight on a, a parallel platform platform to that hatchway. And, uh, uh, the, the rope is in the hands of this circus roustabout with huge, heavy gloves. He is, he is, mar- he has tied a huge knot at the end of the first length of rope that represents the drop I'm going to have right, to do. Right, right. And then he's repeated that. So on action, I dive headfirst toward the camera, dropping free fall. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, the circus roustabout is hold that rope is just spinning through his hands. He's waiting for the first knot. Right. When the first knot reaches his gloves, he jumps off his platform, and I go hurtling back to the ceiling again. Incredible. And then when his feet hit the ground, he lets go again, <sighs> and waiting for the second knot, and I go hurtling back toward the camera. So that's how you got the shot, the, the the experience of seemingly watching me bounce around in that confined space with zero gravity. I mean, it doesn't with zero get, gravity. It doesn't right. get better looking than <laughs> exactly. that. There's 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 no CGI that can replicate that authenticity um, of you know in camera practical effects and the ingenuity that Stanley and his yeah. team must have had to right. come up with. On on a daily, even hourly basis. Well, how do we how do we accomplish this? Um, and and in that scene which you just described, the making of, there's no more, um, just brilliant example of how effective that is to this day. You know, you might. I don't know if I mentioned it, but you might mention. Um, your your audience that's going to hear this interview, if, if anyone's interested in such detailed description of the making of 2001, right from the beginning of its first, of the first insect that concept that Stanley had when he read a short story by Arthur C. Clarke that it was published about 1950, around then, in a science fiction magazine called The Sentinel. The and Sentinel. The germ of the idea that became 2001 and it was a short story, but there's a, the best thing that I have ever seen is, um, 
is about the making, the best thing I've ever read, not seen, the best thing I've ever read about 2001 uh, is a book that came out, I think it was first published in 2018, and it's called Space Odyssey. And it's by, it's by Michael Benson. It's the best thing I've ever, ever read about. But it means he's got things that I, I mean, I learned more stuff that I didn't know about the film <laughs> from reading this book. Truly, I'm serious. I believe you. I believe you. Um, I, I, you've seen the book, obviously. Oh, I've, I've read it twice. Um, it's everything you say and um, uh, just a, a captivating read after reading everything from Jerome Agel's book, uh, the first paperback that was published in the early 70s, all the way through to Piers Bazzoni's uh, work, that fantastic book that he did uh, with Toshin Publishing that looks like a monolith, um, yes, and, and, right. and, and so many others, um, that it's, it's true that uh, Michael's book is, you know, above the fray of so many so much, I should say, that's been written, and that's not to impugn anyone uh, who's written. There have been some fantastic writing, to say the least. One of the things that drew me to Stanley as a teenager in the 1980s was after I had seen The Shining on a home TV screen. For the first time, I was hypnotized by that film, uh, and I was allowed to see it at a pretty young age, I think in 19. 19- 82, it was showing on a local uh, UHF station out of right. Long Island. And I'm sure they didn't secure the legal rights to show it. Um, but uh, it was shown, and my friends and I were just very drawn into it. I, I had seen it by the time I was maybe 12 years old. That would have been 1982 or 1983 at the latest. Um, and so fast forward a, a couple years, and you know, I'm in junior high and then high school, and I remember going to the library and saying, you know, show me all of your books on Stanley Kubrick. And they said, mm-hmm. you know, who? You know, oh, well, there's the, card, <laughs> there's the card catalog. And I was able to find some articles, but at the time, there weren't too many things written about his films that you could find in a library other than right. – Predominantly 2001, a few articles about Dr. Strangelove and some covering mm-hmm. um, Barry Lyndon. Um, and that uh, I was able to fast forward through all this time in my own life to when Michael Benson's book came out. And having read so much about it, I couldn't agree with you more that it really is the 2001 making of par excellence. Yeah, yeah. Have you met him? Have you had the chance? Yes, yes, I have. We we were an event. We were at an event. I think it could have been. I'm trying to remember, it might have been an event at the American Film Institute. A screening there. I can't remember exactly. I, yes, I have. I've met him. Uh, you know, since the book came out, and. Um, but my, my, hold on one second. I'm good at Maya. Yeah. When did we meet Michael Benson? Was it at the American Film Institute or was it somewhere else? Do you remember? Yeah, I can't remember. But I did meet him at, at a 2001 uh, event. It, it, it wasn't a. Was it the, uh, it wasn't the Comic Con. 
type event. It was mm. it was some screening of 2001, the, I think. The, the Museum yeah. of the Moving Image. Hold on. Hold on. Yeah? It was at the Museum of the Moving Image in Queens. Oh, in Astoria, Queens. It was the Museum of the Moving Image in Queens. That's where I met him. That's actually where I met Michael Benson. Um, oh, really? Yeah, our show, one of our show's contributors who can't be with us today, uh, our friend Mark Lentz and I uh, have been to uh, Museum of the Moving Image, or MOMI, as they call it, um, and for, gosh, several Kubrick events. And of course, um, you and I uh, bumped into each other this past January of 2020, I believe on uh, the 16th or the 17th, and Katharina was there. And that was the second time uh, we've gotten to chat a bit in person. But yeah, yeah, it was there that I met um, uh, Michael Benson, and he did say he'd be happy to come on the show. So we're going to speak to him uh, at some point, hopefully oh, soon. Oh, good. Good. Great. You know, what? one thing I want to mention to you, um, that it occurred to me after I was looking at Museum of the Moving Images posts on social media, uh, I had known that their name had been turned it with the, the acronym of M, capital M, lowercase o, capital M, capital I. So they had shared a post about um, the new Kubrick exhibition um, that just went up there, which we yep. both, we, we, you and I were both there for the premiere of, and it's absolutely right. fantastic. Extraordinary, um, yeah. It, it really is extraordinary. They They had a post about it, and in the comments section, I had simply written capital M, lowercase o, capital M, capital I, MMI are the Roman numerals for 2001. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'll be damned. (laughs) What a a thing. What a coincidence. And and it was, you know, uh, received well. They gave it a reaction, and someone from the museum, whoever's in charge of handling their social media, had had written back to my comment. And um, I just thought it was funny because I was thinking, well, gosh, it, it, it just only occurred to me by happenstance. But these folks are working there, you know, and they're they're doing a brand new, brilliant Kubrick exhibition. I can't believe no one else ever picked up on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's brilliant that you did. I mean, look, I never thought about it. You did. So. <laughs> oh, you're kind. You're too kind. Well, that theater... Um, where you and Katharina and Dan Richter, um, who was, I believe, the second guest we had on our show back in right. 2018, he, um, and, and the whole panel that was shot, uh, I shot the video of your, uh, Q&A discussion, um, and that theater is called the Sumner Redstone Theater, and as I understand it, it was designed in no small measure, out of inspiration from 2001. Hmm. I don't think I knew that. Do you, recall, do you recall the interior? Because it has a very interesting, almost like a, a, the, the sarcophagus or, or the fuselage interior of a, of a spacecraft with incredible triangle foam padding, which contributes to what I felt 
was the greatest sound system I had ever experienced in a, a movie theater. Yeah. You know, I think the best sound in recent times uh, uh, for, for 2001 was the, oh, oh gosh, who, there's a very well-known film director who's very responsible for the most recent uh Oh, Christopher Nolan. Of two, yeah. Uh, his version, I mean, his, the version of 2001 that he's very responsible for has the best sound I've heard for the film. They were calling that the unre unrestored print. And yeah, I did see that twice at Momi. Yeah. And, and, and the, and the sound system, just for a quick example is you're so right. So remarkable that there's yeah. a scene when Dr. Floyd is meeting his liaison on space station five and you hear an announcement coming over a public address system and it simply says a lady's blue scarf has been found at, you know, please claim it at the reset. And it stands apart from the rest of the sound track, the audio track so remarkably that when I experienced that for the first time, I actually turned to my friend and said, is, is, is that a house announcement? Did they, they did well, they just interrupt the to, film? <laughs> I have to tell you that I had never heard that at all. And then, oh gosh, five or 10 years ago, t 10 years ago, approximately, at some screening of 2001 that my wife was uh, with me, she heard that. Nobody has ever pointed it out to me. Nobody pointed it out to anybody I've ever met. Uh, she noticed it and realized that was because Kubrick put that in when he realized in editing the film that the continuity lady had goofed. <laughs> and in the, in, in, in the scene when the, the Russian scientists are trying to get them information about from Dr. Floyd mm -hmm. in that hallway when they, they're, they kind of sit together and that one of the two of the, Two of the women, it's, there's a, there's a well-known British actor who plays the Russians, one of the Russian scientists, and the other three are women. Mm. And one of the women that has no lines had a blue sweater over the back of her chair. But on the, uh, when you came around, he did a reverse on that scene. There's no blue sweater. And so that's why Stanley put that little announcement in just to cover the fact if anybody had questioned what happened to the blue sweater, I mean, nobody, it would take somebody who was really into film and understanding how film worked to have even noticed that there was no blue sweater in that because it's a background character. But anyway, that's, that, that's an example of Stanley's brilliance and his, 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 his eye for detail. I mean, I had seen it by that time many times and, I never noticed the blue sweater not being there, let alone having ever heard that kind of that that background public address system. I got time for breakfast. Oh, I think we can manage that. How long have I got? Your flight leaves in an hour and ten minutes. As a matter of fact, I've reserved a table for you in your flight room. Oh, fine, thanks. It's uh, been about seven or eight months since you were here last week. Well, let's see, last year? Yeah, about eight months. Mm. I suppose you saw the work on the new section when you came in. Hey, you're coming along great. Huh? <laughs> yeah, it's fine. 
Oh, wait a minute. Mm. I got to make a couple of phone calls. You go on ahead in the restaurant. I'll meet you there. Huh? Right. Okay, so this concludes part one of our discussion, but you can bet we've got more in store, so stay tuned. Thanks to Mark Lentz, James Marinaccio, and the best producer a Kubrick file could ever hope to have, Stephen Rigg. Be sure to subscribe and like our show wherever you grab your casts, because seriously, if you don't, Stephen might just go do a podcast about canine hygiene. Okay? Also, be sure to join the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society on Facebook, the greatest resource of SK Info on the interwebs. Meanwhile, stay strong and hang in there, because we are going to ride this thing out, friends. The people who bring you this show have all lost loved ones. A lifelong family friend, Orlando Staten, whom I bought my first drum kit from when I was 12, succumbed to it recently. And not 10 minutes after we spoke with Keir DeLay, I found out my general practitioner of many years, Dr. Mike Giuliano, had died from the coronavirus. Lily and Evie Rigg lost their granddad, Michael, a lovely human being and a wonderful granddad. So we get it. This is hitting and hurting every one of us in unique but also unifying ways. You know, I actually work full-time in a grocery store, guys. That's the truth. And tomorrow, I'll be back there just trying to help people bring food to their families. Believe me, we not only know the cost, we feel it too. So, this road is long, but be strong and keep well. Because... We need you to join us here again soon in Kubrick's universe. We're going to lead you out with a song featured in Bunny Lake is Missing by one of our favorite bands, The Zombies. Take good care, and thank you all for listening. Come on time, come on time for the show. The clock will tell you when to go. While the show's on, can you get in? No! So Preminger presents Bunny Leg is Missing. What's suspense? <laughs> Lawrence Olivier is immense. Come on, time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The zombies are there. That's us. That's me. That's him. That's him. We want to go on record and say How great can a movie be? Is keen as a knife. Kid Delay will give you the time of your life. Come with your girlfriend, come with your wife, but, but come on time. Come on time. Oh, yeah. The zombies are there. You're sure to have a ball. Time for the show. The clock will tell you when to go. 
you get in No! Please come on time. It's Kubrick's universe. We just live in it. We have taken very thorough precautions in this podcast against broadcasting anything which might only be attributed to human error. Thank you for listening to the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Come back soon. This show comes to you from the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society.